Hello, I'm Rabbi Ed Bernstein. Welcome to the My Teacher Podcast, a celebration of the people who shape our lives. My guest is Rabbi Susan Talvey. She is the founding rabbi of Central Reform Congregation, the only Jewish congregation located within the city limits of St. Louis. She is a recognized leader in an array of social justice issues that I hope to explore today with her. Rabbi Susan Talvey, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the My Teacher podcast. Wonderful to be with you. Susan, you grew up in the New York area, I believe in Westchester County. Could you describe a bit your childhood and what Jewish practice looked like for you in your household when you were growing up? I was actually born in Brooklyn and had two sets of grandparents. Both sets were immigrants and they lived in Brooklyn, but they were very different. One set of grandparents came in 1916 from the Ottoman Empire, from Turkey and Greece. They came on a boat with my oldest aunt and that was a big part of our story was that they had to leave everybody behind and that's why my father and his seven siblings didn't have any relatives. So that family growing up in that home, in that Sephardic apartment, you know, which was like two rooms, but had a thousand people living in it and feasts, you know, every Shabbat. That was a very important place for me in Brooklyn growing up. And then my other grandparents came from Russia and England, and they were very proper. And I'll tell you, the other kind of milieu I grew up in was thinking that my parents were a mixed marriage. You know, my father's family didn't understand the Ashkenazi customs, and my mother's family really didn't think my father was Jewish. They thought he was, you know, Spanish-speaking, Puerto Rican, something. I don't know. They didn't really get that. So watching, you know, I grew up watching these two families kind of come to fall in love over Passover, over Shabbat, over, you know, this kind of melding of the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi traditions was always a really interesting way for me to grow up. And the foods and the smells and the music, everything was so different. And also the religion was different. My grandfather, who came from Russia, you know, had no use for religion. He would cross the street if he would go in front of a synagogue. I learned much later after he died that he actually took me to a synagogue and named me, which was unheard of. The fact that my grandfather from Russia would go to a synagogue, but he did to name me, which was really sweet. I was his oldest grandchild. But then on the other side, my Sephardic grandparents were so colorful. And, you know, my grandfather would go to the shul all the time because he liked to sing. You know, I don't think he really had much use for God or for anything else, but he loved to sing and he could sing those prayers, you know. So putting them together at Passover, eventually when when the two of them's doing their own Seder, they all got old and we eventually moved to Westchester and had the bigger house, you know. Seeing them sitting together at the head of the Passover table, my one grandfather with a kippah, my other grandfather without a kippah, you know. And the thing that they had in common was World War One. So mm. when they couldn't daven the prayers together because the melodies and everything was so different, they would sing World War One songs. <laughs> I gather eating rice on Pesach has never been an issue for you. <laughs> <laughs> rice. We still have rice. In fact, when I I became the rabbi at CRC, I declared that rice, you know, is way ahead of JTS, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that rice would be okay because they had a Sephardic rabbi, at least a partially Sephardic rabbi. Right. Um, we eat rice. But my parents did a very interesting thing when I was mm. young. They moved to Croton on the Hudson. Croton on the Hudson was a very kind of was way out there, you know, in the early 50s. And they moved to an intentional community with a rabbi named Israel Khan. And as far as I can understand, they didn't like to talk about it too much, but they moved there to be part of his intentional community, where they would all raise their children together with these certain values, socialist values, actually, because you remember Croton was kind of the communist area there in northern Westchester. And I was the first child that was born to this community. There was a whole child rearing thing that went with it, but it was it was almost like a cult. It was kind of cultish. I was thinking it was, it's kind of sounds like an upscale kibbutz. <laughs> it was. That's what they were trying to do, I think, create that. Um, we didn't last too long, but we ended up staying in Croton and belonging to a, a temple called Temple Israel of Northern Westchester. The only thing I would say about that was one of my rabbis there was a man named Michael Robinson of Blessed Memory, and he was from the South. And what I remember as a child is that everybody always complained that the rabbi was always off marching in Selma. Where was he when we needed him. And I remember as a kid, you know, young kid, I must have been eight or nine years old thinking, 
How cool is that? Mm. My rabbi is marching with Dr. King. My rabbi is off there, you know, is marching in Selma way before. This was the uh, the early 60s, not the late 60s. So I think that was a very important thing. Because we're not terribly religious in the sense that we didn't keep kosher. We didn't keep Shabbat by that point or anything like their, you know, parents had grown up in that. But, but they belonged to a synagogue. It was important that they helped build that temple and that they shared those values, I think. The example of that rabbi seems to have planted a kernel of the social justice model of the rabbinate that you emulate today. It did. It did. I think it really did. And I, my, one of my biggest regrets is that I never had a chance really to tell him once I became a rabbi how influential that memory was in my life. Yeah. I read that when you went to college, you went to St. Lawrence University, and you were originally pre-med and then <laughs> later on switched to a mode that led you to the rabbinate. So can you take me to your journey at that point? Well, I'm probably not alone in this part of the story, but, you know, uh, late 60s, we all kind of got involved in, you know, the anti-war and feminism and all the other movements that were kind of exploding at that time and catching our attention. And my mother was always very active in the brand Brandeis Women's Auxiliary or something. So, of course, I was expected to go to Brandeis. But, you know, I was a little rebellious. So, instead, I chose to go to St. Lawrence, which was way up New York State on the St. Lawrence Seaway. And one of the reasons I went there was because when I went to visit, it was, first of all, it was so beautiful there. But also because they took me to the St. Regis Mohawk Native American Reservation and said, this is where a lot of our students volunteer and mentor and tutor. And I just thought that was amazing. I wanted to do that. And so I went there and I never thought about not having other Jews. I mean, there were Jews there, but we were not really prominent. But two things really happened there that were, well, three that were really important for me. First of all, I met a professor, you know, talk about your teachers, Daniel O'Connor of Blessed Memory Now. It was the days where you had to take those classes in humanities and humanities there was religion. It was religion. <laughs> it was religion. And in one of those classes, he, you know, he was a Christian, really a Christian. And I found myself saying, wait a minute, that's just not how I learned it or that's not the way I learned things. And we ended up having this really magical relationship in my freshman year and we had something called a January term and I went on a January term to Athens, Rome and Israel with him that my freshman year and I just loved how he taught. I loved that he was exacting. I loved that he was demanding as a teacher. You really had to know your stuff and you had to defend. If I was going to ask a question, I had to know what I was talking about. He was writing a book at, actually at the time called Peter in Rome and he took us under the Vatican to see some of the excavations that ended up being part of the circus, you know. So it ended up that the Vatican was built over a place where gladiators were, which was a big revelation. And he was writing this amazing book about Peter. And he taught us the whole way through Hellenism and then the Roman Empire. And then we went to Jerusalem. And, you know, I had been to Israel before. I had gone to Israel in 1968 when I was 15 years old. I had been in France the year before, the 1967 war. And the people I was staying with were a lot of North African Jews. And they all went to fight in the 67 war. But I was, you know, 14 years old. <laughs> I couldn't go. So I was determined to get to Israel. So when I was 15, I went. It was 1968. And, oh, my God, I fell in love with Israel. We didn't know about the occupation. We didn't know, really, that wasn't the story, that wasn't the narrative that was told on this little teen trip that I took. And it was magical to me. I was in the Negev and we picked garlic and gladiola bulbs and I saw how the desert was blooming and learned about Ben-Gurion and his dream of making the desert bloom. And I mean, just it was just magical for me. And so this was an excuse for me to go back to Israel with him. But I learned so much about the complexities with him. And then the next summer, I did my first dig in Meron and we discovered a mikvah, the first wow. mikvah that was discovered, yeah, really, in the Galilee. And I was the first woman to be in this mikvah for 2,000 years. <laughs> it was crazy, you know, because we were digging out thinking it was a tomb. The Hasidim were going crazy because they thought we were digging into in a tomb and it turned out 
a mikvah and boy did we have a celebration reclaiming that mikvah after all those years anyway he changed my life saint lawrence changed my life so that professor and i went back every year and dug and that's how i ended up living in tunisia and working for the smithsonian and doing digs after college but he was my teacher and that's why i left pre-med and became a religion major because the academic of it, the thoughtfulness. I was determined to learn rabbinic history, to learn rabbinics, because, you know, for him it was church history. So I had to bring the rabbinics to it. So I founded the first Jewish organization. I founded the first feminist organization when I brought Betty Friedan to St. Lawrence when I was a junior. It was 1972, and Sally Presan was just ordained. And Betty Friedan said to me after a speech, she said, What are you going to do? Be a rabbi? I said, No, I'll never be a rabbi. I'm not going to be a token in a patriarchal profession. I'll be a witch. I'm not going to be a rabbi. Yeah. So when did it click in you that you would become a rabbi and that rabbinical school was the place to go? You mentioned Sally Presand. She was the first woman ordained in the reform movement in 1972. And I imagine that when you entered rabbinical school in the 1970s, it was still far from the norm for women. So what prompted you on that route? You know, I was living in Tunis. I was working at the excavations at Carthage and exposed to the PLO that had moved in that were there, exposed to some a different kind of anti-Semitism and anti-Jewishness than I had ever experienced, and came home. I was didn't decided I was not going to be pursue archaeology. Maybe I would pursue it, a degree in Near Eastern studies to learn more by accident, kind of by a fluke. Applied to rabbinical school, really had no intention of being a rabbi still, but I applied and I went back to Tunis and I got in and I said, oh, I'll do this. <laughs> I'll get to be in Israel again. You know, I didn't mention that 1973 came and I was still in college, right? It was the year before I graduated and that changed everything. The Yom Kippur War. You know, the Yom Kippur changed yeah. the way the world saw Israel and pushed us all to look at a different kind of narrative. So I did go back to Israel. I did my first year in Jerusalem, like most of us do. In 1976, I met the man that would become my husband, really the first day that I got there. And that, of course, changed my life too. And he's a rabbi too. A rabbi. We went through school together. I went back to New York, but he w was a Midwesterner and wouldn't come to New York. So I transferred to Cincinnati, which is how we ended up in the Midwest. What's your husband's name? His name is Rabbi James Stone Goodman. He's a poet and a musician. Just put out a new album, put a plug for it, Dressed for Class, it's called. And now that COVID has hit, we're actually doing a lot together. We're doing all the services together. Since we're stuck at home, we're doing a lot of things together. <laughs> and of course, we raised three children together and two grandchildren. We've been married 40 years. Wonderful. So take us back to what was it like being a woman in rabbinical school at that time? HUC was ordained women, but it wasn't the norm yet. Yeah, they, they didn't think about anything. I mean, we didn't have bathrooms we could go to, you know, it's like, it was little things like that. But, you know, you also asked me, when did I decide to become a rabbi? And I really have to say it's when I started to serve as a rabbi. I didn't really get it. I was doing it for the education. I was doing it because I felt like it could be a spiritual journey for me, and I was very much on a spiritual journey. I was very much a feminist and felt like I had something to say to give voice to the women in the Bible who had been silenced, it felt like, and women in Jewish tradition that didn't have a voice, and I had this voice, and holy chutzpah thought I could add to those voices, but I learned a lot. It humbles you. I also had the opportunity when I was in Cincinnati to found the first infant care cooperative in the workplace in Ohio because all the men were having children and the first woman who was going to have a baby, woman rabbi, woman rabbinical student who was going to have a baby was ready to drop out because she couldn't find quality childcare. We decided, wait a minute, something's wrong with this picture. And Betty Friedan had just written her second book and she said the revolution is when you start quality, affordable childcare in the workplace. So I said, oh, we're going to do that. And we did. It's no longer there because we couldn't compete with the JCC that was very well funded. But for 20-something years, we had an infant care cooperative at HUC in, in Cincinnati that I founded, helped to found. That reminds me, I've heard that when JTS started ordaining women in the 1980s, that those first few years were hard on the, the female graduates because, yes, they were granted access, which was important, but it was like they were expected to be honorary men and there wasn't yet the real integration of a culture and the evolution
evolution of a culture that says we welcome women to the rabbinate in the fullest sense. So it sounds like HUC was still grappling with what that really meant at that time. You can be here, but you got to play by the same rules. And we don't play by the same rules. And what an invitation. I, I love the way that you frame that as a culture shift, a culture expansion, really. Because uh, women, we do have different priorities. We do make relationships sometimes in different ways. You know, I remember mm-hmm. when I first came to St. Louis and I would go visit people in the hospital. And of course, they would think it was the nurse walking in. But I normally would bring hand cream and I would start to rub people's hands because you know how dry you get in the hospital? And of course, it would it would took a while for people to realize that I was the rabbi coming to pray with them. But they did. And I felt like it opened up an opportunity for more touch, for more intimacy, for more a kind of closeness and more trust for the male rabbis who then could have permission to do that kind of touch therapy. Mm. So what led you to St. Louis and the formation of Central Reform Congregation? Well, when my husband and I were, or we were ordained together, and of course we wanted to stay together, and this was a very new thing. There were a number of couples in our class, but there were not that many people before us. And uh, Christian couples had shared jobs, but not Jewish couples. So we applied as a team, and the only person that went for it was a guy named Rabbi Jeffrey Stiffman here in St. Louis at a congregation called Shari Emmet, and he went for it. I think he thought he was getting two for one, <laughs> which he did, but it was an experiment. We were two people for one salary to share the job, but it was hard because we were very different. It was our first jobs. We didn't really know what we were doing, and we worked all the time. And then I had a baby two years in, and my husband couldn't nurse. (laughs) There were things that only I could do, both in the synagogue and also at home. So we were there for three years. My husband then took a different job at a different congregation, and I uh, got pregnant again. So I was going to have two babies in two years. And I said, I've had enough of congregational life. I don't want to be a congregational rabbi. I want to be an activist. And I took a job teaching at St. Louis University, which is a Jesuit university. There was a class there that was supported by Chautauqua or something and was in the philosophy department. So I taught this Jewish life and thought class at St. Louis University. And I loved it. I loved teaching. I loved the students. And I loved being able to bring my baby. I had a new baby and brought her to class with me. That was wonderful. And then this group of 30 people I had been talking to who were upset about the white flight to the suburbs of all the other congregations had different values than some of the suburban congregations, but wanted something more than just having a school. They had a school, some of them, at the Hillel. And so I had been meeting with them. I'd been consulting with them. And I thought, oh, this is a nice Havara. I could belong to this Havara. I love these people. Well, that little Havara within a few months of my leaving the other congregation became a congregation. They put money in the bank and they said, we want you to be our rabbi. And so I said, all right, I could do that. 30 people can handle that. Well, by the time our third child was born in 1986, we were already at about 250 households. And now we're close to 800 and we have a building and we're an established community in the city and really in the region. But we do remain the only congregation in the city. Yeah, and that's something that is very important to your congregation's identity. So can you talk more about the intentionality of keeping a congregation within the city limits of St. Louis? You know, St. Louis has an interesting history where the city and the and the county were separated. Everything is separated, really. It all goes back to slavery <laughs> and the fight over being a slave state or not being a slave state. It also goes back to segregation. We're a very segregated city. And it also goes back to property values and property and taxes. So while it would be much better for this region to be one, it's we're, we're having a hard time making that happen. So in the meantime, the city is really like one of the other little municipalities of the bigger county, but it still has the identity of being the city. And it's down to about 300,000 people. And a lot of the poverty, a lot of the problems with schools, you know, not being funded the same way county schools are funded, uh, happens in the city. And yet it's where our big hospitals are. It's where some of the big companies and corporations are. And it's where the river is, you know, you can't escape the river. River has real power here, even though we kind of lost our sense of being a river city. Mighty Mississippi. Yeah, the mighty Mississippi. And we have the confluence of the Missouri and the Mississippi here. In fact, the history of the region is that the great mounds of Cahokia were here because it's where seven different rivers actually came together. And the native peoples 
understood the importance of the spiritual nature of a place. And, you know, East St. Louis was the birth of the blues and so much jazz, so much has come out of East St. Louis. And that is that place where the rivers, the confluence comes. Some years ago, a woman was protesting for the people of Haiti and for the president Aristide to come back into power. And she was a great choreographer. She choreographed the first Aida with elephants at the Met that I saw actually when I was a kid. And she was fasting for the people of Haiti. And Dick Gregory, an activist who comes came from St. Louis, led us all across the Dr. King Bridge to convince Catherine Dunham to uh, break her fast. She had fasted for 46 days. Oh my. I talked to her and I went to her and I said, you know, we love you. We want you to live. And tomorrow is Purim. And this is the fast of Esther. You are our Queen Esther. And you could break your fast on Purim. She said, only if you go home and make me chicken soup. <laughs> I went home and made her chicken soup. And she broke her fast on Purim for the people of Haiti. Aristide was actually there with all the dignitaries. And on the news, she broke her fast with our chicken soup. So St. Louis, being in the city and being part of the city culture, you know, making that statement so that we would be included in the narrative. You know, we live under the shadow of the Dred Scott decision here that happened here, and he's buried here. So we live under that shadow. We have a lot to redeem here. And the commitment to be part of the solution, you know, every synagogue has to have windows, right? So when we built our synagogue in the city, we, you know, we were never going to build. We were always going to rent because we thought we'd put our money into people and programs, not into bricks. But then we got so big, we needed a building. So we built this building and it's all windows, which is not so great today. <laughs> we're putting bulletproof windows in, you know, now you got to think about that but we're all it's all windows and no stained glass so that we can see the street see into the street and uh we do we see into the street we have a homeless ministry we have a tikkun closet that people come to i mean we're we're right there you know where the action is in many ways and that is appreciated by the people who are working on the issues of great disparity because of race in our city i hope as we'll explore much more deeply the racial issues that we're dealing with as a country and how you're dealing with it but you've been on the forefront of an array of progressive issues in your congregation in a state that is quite conservative. So one thing that stands out in your biography for me is from a very early time, relatively speaking, in the 1980s, you were performing same-sex weddings. This is like at least 20 years before it began to catch on elsewhere, 30 years before it was legalized anywhere. So can you describe what drove your passion for LGBTQ inclusion, even when it was unpopular? You know, I wish I remembered. I thought my awakening to LGBTQ issues was becoming a part of a group of women, Jewish women, clergy and academics called Benot Aish, Women of Fire. And we used to meet a place called Cornwall. I think they still do. I, there were a lot of women who were really great teachers on issues of the inequality and the way that the LGBTQ community was treated, especially in the Jewish community as well. And I thought that was my awakening, but my parents told me that I was was writing papers about gay and lesbian rights when I was in high school. So I'm not exactly sure where that came from. It may have been a teacher that sparked it, but I know it's been a passion and an awareness forever for me. So when we founded CRC in the early 80s, it was a time of the AIDS epidemic. And we were all very aware that there were people who were really suffering, people who were dying alone, people who had no spiritual support. And so we said, without becoming a queer congregation, how do we open our hearts and our doors and make it accessible to the LGBTQ community. And it was hard because we had to build trust. So we did a bunch of listening sessions and we found that people couldn't put their names down on a membership roster, for example, because they could be outed and lose their jobs or lose their children or you know lose everything. So we had to find a way to make people members without having them be members. We had to figure out timing issues, language issues. We decided we'd never use a textbook that didn't have that had mommies and daddies lighting candles 
mommy's lighting candles and daddy's doing kiddush. We would never use a textbook that, that didn't show mommies and mommies and daddies and daddies. That We would really try to figure out a paradigm that would be just more than lip service inclusive. There was a congregation down the street from where we were meeting. We, we met in a church for 16 years, Unitarian Church. There was a, a congregation called MCC. It's a gay church. And I would go there, Erev Shabbat, and with usually with a kid or two, and see if I could see Jews and say, you know, you could come to the shul. <laughs> you could come to Shabbat services too. Go here, but come come to us too. And I would go on Sundays when they would have services. And, you know, I, I was shameless. I just kind of recruited. And then when people started coming, then I got ringers, you know, like so for high holidays, I would make sure that we would have two men lighting the candles and speak. Even if they weren't members, I'd say, you have to do this because other people have to see you, right? So we created this paradigm of, of how to be an inclusive community to the gay community. And especially, you know, again, in the in the 80s, it was really important. And so the other thing we did was we made sure that we, in our school, we had gay men. Two of them had AIDS, by the way, teaching in our school for lots of reasons. They wanted to teach. And we wanted to show people that we weren't afraid, that this was a community that we were going to love and was part of us. So it happened. And then our indicator that we were successful was 20 years later, you know, it's, it's just not an issue. It Well, now it's many, many years later. But when we did our indicator, it was like in 20 years, in the early 2000s, right? We had so many families that were raising their kids with us, gay and lesbian families. And we were on the forefront of marriage equality. I did my first gay marriage in 1982. It was a secret ceremony in a public garden. <laughs> and I said, someday, someday, I'm going to have a marriage license to sign for you. And I have to tell you, the first time I signed a legal document for a gay couple, I mean, it still makes me cry. Mm. For years, what I did was I wouldn't fill the cup. I wouldn't fill the cup of life, that first kiddish. I wouldn't fill it completely. Say, when gay people can marry too, that's when we'll fill this cup. And I said it almost at every wedding, you know, regardless of what people's politics were. Those were my politics. And I got to perform one of the very first legal weddings in Missouri. I performed many in Iowa because Iowa began, we had these marriage equality buses that my friend Scott Ned led to Iowa. So we would take, we took 150 people to Iowa to marry them. I did a lot of those. The first marriage that I got to do in St. Louis in the mayor's office was really quite amazing. That was a trial. You know, that was our rebellion marriage, but it was legal. And then the case went to court and then we got legal marriage and I got to do uh, one of the first marriage licenses that was delivered to a couple that belonged to CRC, belongs to CRC. Wonderful. I'm so grateful to be part of that history. I think that what it's done too is it's lifted up the trans community and we have so much work to do. But, you know, I always say male and female, God created them. The first person was trans and probably a trans person of color. So, you know, we've got to really work now for trans rights. So let's fast forward to 2014 and the Michael Brown killing in Ferguson and the uprising that that generated. Can you take us back to that time? And where were you when you first heard of Mike Brown and what happened in terms of your involvement in that whole situation? It was a hot Shabbos morning, August 8th, 2014. We had just finished services and we got the word. We're a reformed congregation, so we were connected. And this was a big social media event. So people started talking. And, you know, I had been showing up even before CRC to places where people of color had been shot. And the custom was to put some flowers or a teddy bear and it was at a street corner. We'd been doing that for many, many years. And because I had been doing that, and I don't know what made me do that. I think I think it just broke my heart. And as a mom, as a rabbi, I just wanted to show up for those families. And so, you know, I just used to do that. And so here was Mike Brown, another 18-year-old kid, just graduated from high school, on his way to college. But when we saw what was happening on social media, we knew this was going to be something else. It struck a chord. So as soon as school was over, I went out there with many others and um, saw people that I had been, you know, working on justice issues with for many, many years. And, you know, as a white person, I always very respectful of letting especially black women lead the way. 
but as the leaders, the clergy leaders were being called, I was included. Come with us. You're one of us. Come stand with us. So I did. And that was on Saturday. On Sunday, there was a big protest in front of the police department, and I was there for that. It's when we started to take over the street, and members of my congregation, African-American members of my congregation, you know, here's another piece of the story, the paradigm that we used for inclusion for the LGBTQ community, we also used to be inclusive of Jews of color. And that's another whole story of how we tried to be a congregation that didn't just say you're welcome, but we changed ourselves. We grew, we expanded to include people who are uh, Jews of color. So while we're on this tangent, I think it's a worthy tangent. Can you describe some of the things that your congregation does to make Jews of color feel fully welcome? Well, we actually put ourselves through a dismantling racism time. We hired a woman many years ago, early 2000, right when we moved into our building, Yavila McCoy, who started an organization called Ayeka. She was living in St. Louis at the time, a godsend. I always feel like that was God's touching us, that Yavila was here and she could push us to look at the things we were doing. And again, we changed the textbooks. We changed the images. The only image at the time that was hanging on the wall was an Ethiopian depiction of a rabbi with children all around him, right? Black, with a black face. I wanted those kids of color to come in and feel that they were not invisible, that they were Jewish, because we interviewed some of the kids who had grown up in St. Louis as black and Jewish. And they said, well, you can't be both, and I can't choose not to be black. So so I'll choose not to be Jewish. And that was just not okay. So how do you do that? And again, it's language, it's music. Music was a big thing. And that translates to Ferguson because the first people that took the street in Ferguson were two of our members. One, Koach Frazier, who was at the time doing music for CRC, became the drummer of the movement. And he sat in the street and took the street back with those first protesters. Now the clergy said, get out of the street, get out of the street. But no, that's when we we saw with that second day, that Sunday, that the leaders of this movement were not going to be the clergy. It was going to be the young protesters. And if we didn't figure out a way to be a meaningful part of this movement, it wasn't going to happen. So what we did was we ended up having a big gathering at my friend Tracy Blackman's church on Tuesday night, Christ the King. And the governor even came. But it was clear this was not where this protest was going to happen. This protest was not going to happen in the church. It was going to happen in the street because there were two Americas and we had to make sure that we were standing with the America that killed Mike Brown. This 18-year-old kid, maybe he mouthed to that police officer. If that police officer, I promise you, had said to Mike, hey Mike, congratulations. I heard you graduated from high school. Congratulations, I heard you're going to college. Hey sweetheart, do you mind? Get off the street, walk on the sidewalk. I want you to be safe. Instead of what we think he said to him, things would have been very different. But that wasn't the relationship of this white police officer with the black kids in his neighborhood. And two months later, after Mike Brown was killed, and we were out every night trying to, as clergy, de-escalate, but also figure out not how to take the movement, but how to support the movement, how to be there for these amazing young protesters, right? These young protesters who were saying, see me, I'm not invisible. I'm a student. I'm a nurse. I'm a mother. Look at me. I mean, they won my heart. And that's why I went every day. Why I went, and not just me, but so many of us went every night. We went to stand between the police and the protesters to keep them safe as, for as long as we could. And that's how we got to be part of the movement, by finding our place in it, by knowing our place, that our place was not to lead. Our place was to support as, as clergy. And so we did. And two months after Mike Brown was killed, another kid was killed. It's Von Derrett Meyer in another part of town, a part of town that's more kind of white, you know, but also in the city, the Shaw neighborhood, it's called. And he was shot by an off-duty police officer. And so we all got in our cars and we went there. He was still lying in the street. The ambulance came and took him away. And my friend Tracy Blackman, Reverend Tracy Blackman, UCC, she did a prayer over the blood in the street. She and I actually went to the morgue with the dad. But when we came back, the mom was still there, Sarita Meyer. And she looked at me and she said, Rabbi, don't let them make a thug out of my son. He was not a thug. And that got my attention. And I think that's part of our job, is not to 
to let the world dehumanize these kids, whether they're protesters, whether they're out in the street, whether they're suffering from poverty and racism and all of the terrible disparities that have caused the unbelievable poverty and school issues and health care issues in our poor neighborhoods. That's our work today, is to try to end these disparities. One of our third child was born with congenital heart disease and spent a lot of time in the hospital with her, the Children's Hospital, which is really quite a remarkable place in St. Louis. But I'd leave the hospital. And I ran the support group for families of kids with congenital heart disease for 20 years because there wasn't one. So of course we had to start one. But I learned a lot. I learned about the disparities in healthcare. It led me to start uh, Missouri Healthcare for All, which is now a 501c3, 501c4 state-run, statewide organization that has nine full-time employees because of the disparities, because of the problems. But in this hospital, the heroic efforts that they would use to save one life, the money that they would spend saving these lives, which, I mean, I was benefiting from. They were saving my kid's life again and again. You'd walk outside in that zip code. Kids of color would die, you know, at 40% more the rate of kids in the next zip code, the next suburban zip code. Just the disparities were mind-blowing. And, you know, that's also part of the story of Ferguson. How far is Ferguson from your community in St. Louis? You know, nothing is far. I guess from my house, it's about 10 minutes, and from the synagogue, maybe 15, 20 minutes. So you told me when we were preparing for this interview, the organizers of the Ferguson protests you consider to be your teachers. So can you elaborate on that? Who were the organizers of the Ferguson protests? Because they they were not like the ministers of African-American churches. They were much younger and not necessarily religiously affiliated. So can you tell me more about them and what you've learned from them? Two of them that I just completely fell in love with were these two young women who were both queer, not gender conforming. One of them studying to be a nurse and and she was a mother. The other one wanting education, so smart. And they just kind of gave up everything to be leaders in the movement and to make sure that it was expansive, that it was open. And what did, how did they teach me? They taught me to see the disparities. I would always go to the protests that they would do. And one of the protests was at the airport. This was like the scariest one for me because it was on federal property. And we took the train to the airport and then we laid in front of the gate. We laid down, you know, in front of the gate and people couldn't get to their gate. And <laughs> turned out one of my congregants was one of the people who was trying to get on the plane with her daughter. And her daughter said, oh, look, it's my rabbi. And of course, that went viral. (laughs) The eye-opening thing, the teaching thing, is that we can make people uncomfortable for a few moments, make them a little bit anxious. Nobody was going to miss their flight, right? Make them a little bit anxious, make them a little uncomfortable for a few moments in a protest. But when you're Black, you're uncomfortable all the time. When you're black, you're not even safe sitting in your home. People can barge in. You know, when you're black and you're walking or you're shopping or you're driving, you're always, always uncomfortable. You know, there's always something that makes you a little bit unsafe. And white skin is really different. You know, living in white skin in this country is so different from living in black skin. And you know, you can know that and it can drive how you how you act and how you respond. But when you really feel it, it makes you sick. It really, it makes you sick when you see it. And you have to do something or you can't sleep at night knowing that other people's children, people you love, that their children are at risk. I lost a daughter to cancer. We couldn't stop the cancer. But you know, to lose children to senseless gun violence, to lose children to hunger, to lose children because they can't get adequate health care, to lose children because they're not getting the kind of education that lifts them up out of poverty, How do we live with that? I don't know how people live with it. I can barely function as a mother who's lost a child. I'm a broke, I'm broken. Your daughter, Adina, who passed, what, three years ago? Two and a half, Uh, yeah. Two and a half years, yeah. May she rest in peace. She was a force. Yeah. She was something. And she cared about these things. She cared about bodies of difference. She was a real advocate for paying attention to, to people who are other, to people who are marginalized to people who suffer because they don't have a seat at the table. And that's really what this is about. That's what this is about. 
that's CRC. That's how we we founded CRC on those values. So the young organizers of the Ferguson protests, it sounds like, helped open your eyes to the systemic inequalities that exist in our society. I mean, you can know them here. But when you're willing to put your body on the line, which I was willing to do for these two young women, I paid their rent for a year because they lost their jobs, because they were so, they did so much for the protest movement. I would do anything for them. Right now, I, they don't need me. One of them just graduated from WashU with honors. She's amazing. She's so smart. And the other one is, I think, now working on her PhD. She's a nurse. She's higher than a nurse. She's got a degree in public health. And I think she's working on her PhD in nursing now. I mean, these women will change the world. And that I got to be a little part of their life is such an honor. They were great teachers. They, they remained great teachers because they demanded to not be invisible. They demanded space that they counted their lives really do matter, and they will continue to matter. It's very powerful. One thing I remember from when I've heard you speak, when I've learned with you at the Song Leader Boot Camp, an annual conference in St. Louis, you told a story about how your congregation literally gave sanctuary to protesters. Can you take us to that? I think it was a Friday night and what was happening and what transpired. Stokely, this was another protest that happened in St. Louis that also ended up going on for a long time. But that day that the Stokely verdict, it was another police officer that shot an unarmed black man. And the verdict came down that he was not going to be indicted. And that did not go over well. My daughter was already sick at the time, by the way. It's 2017. She was okay, though. So she was okay that night. So I said, you know, I think I'm tonight because that day had been the protests and I, I went to the protests during the day and uh, you know she said sure go so I was at Friday night services and I had a feeling that the protests were going to come into the central west end where our synagogue is it's one of the places that protests happen and as I said we built the synagogue with windows so you can see into the street so just as services were getting over with we and oh we we kind of knew that maybe there were going to be protests and during ferguson this so the history is during ferguson we were a sanctuary if protesters needed a place to come we had arranged to be a safe space we always had water we had snacks we had stuff to deal with tear gas and rubber bullets and you know triage so we knew what it meant to be a sanctuary so we had done that for this Friday because we had a feeling that eh, people were coming through. Maybe we'll be a sanctuary. We got to buy the board and everything. And we had water. We had snacks, triage stuff. And so it happened. We finished services and, oh my God, we looked out the window and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people marching down the street. So we went outside cheering them on with our Black Lives Matter signs. We were all out there cheering everybody on. And they came down our street and they were actually on their way to the mayor's house, which is around the corner from where the synagogue is, not far. And the mayor's house had been surrounded by a lot of militarized police. So the militarized police started chasing the protesters down our street. And so what turned it from a very peaceful protest with kids and Wash U students and families, you know, it was Friday night, everybody was out. And a lot of white people, a lot of black people, a lot of everybody people, all those people were then being chased with tear gas, with tear gas by the police down our street. And so the other rabbi, uh, Rabbi Fleischer and I, who were there, we said, throw the doors open. And we went out and we, we just kept telling the protesters to come in, come in, come in, come in, come in. Get out of the tear gas. Get out of, away from the rubber bullets. Just come in. You'll be safe here. You'll be safe here. Now, a lot of people didn't know where they were coming into. They didn't know we were a synagogue. You know, you really can't really tell from the outside of the building. But we just kept pulling people in, pulling people in. And then we went out, we talked to the police and we said, this is a sanctuary. You can't come in here. And and they said, as long as you keep them inside, we won't arrest them. But if they come out, we're going to start arresting people. So we had hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people in the synagogue until about two o'clock in the morning, until the police left. And, you know, for many people, it was the first time they were in there. And, you know, one of the interesting little side things here is we have an Israeli flag, American flag, a world flag, and a flag of Israel in our sanctuary. And there were 
the Ferguson to Palestine people came in for sanctuary and they were sitting in our sanctuary. And you know, it gave an opportunity to have some real courageous conversations with people who we were in community with, you know, that we were caring for, that we were giving shelter to. And it was a magical night. It really was. It was a beautiful night. And you know, we got letters for months and months and even years after that saying, thank you for sheltering my child. Hmm. I just was interviewed by a man who said he was press and he found shelter in the synagogue that night as well. Uh, it was quite, quite a night, but you know, why we have windows. It would be nice to think that police violence would have ended with that show of sanctuary and all that, but the issue has persisted and this year has been an inflection point. George Floyd, particularly being choked to death by a police officer in Minneapolis, police officer's knee on his neck. It's chilling imagery caught on video that was seen around the world. Protests have erupted around the nation and even around the world, demanding sweeping reforms of our police system. Moreover, there seems to be, at last, some sort of reckoning among whites of the systemic racism in our country that people of color have known all too well. So I'd like to ask what in your mind has changed in our country and what has not changed enough since Ferguson and needs to change? Well, you're right that some things have changed. Ferguson, I got a lot of criticism from the Jewish community. They didn't want me out there. The Jewish community was angry. They thought I was polarizing. They thought I was anti-police. And I was really very much alone on the streets of Ferguson. Though uh, there was a time when a bunch of rabbis from around the country came, truer rabbis, some of your JTS friends. But for the most part, it was pretty lonely out there. And we took a lot of criticism for being there. But now, oh my God, everybody and their sister is out there. Everybody's out there. You know, it's like, this is the thing to do is to form a protest. And, you know, the children are protesting. The white children are protesting. Everybody's protesting. You know, everybody's doing a, what they call peaceful marches, which, you know, nobody really wants it. We want a nonviolent march, but there's a, it's a whole different scene. However, what has not changed is the system and the training for law enforcement and the whole systemic racism that exists in the law enforcement system, the inequality in the budget. You know, a budget is a moral document and these things have not shifted. In fact, more money is placed in police. And, you know, the more militarized the police becomes in a situation, the more violence there is. I can tell you that I never felt so safe as I did on the streets of Ferguson when it was the protesters, when the protesters were in charge. Uh, the times that it got violent was when the police became militarized, when they provoked it. I, you know, and again, I, I don't completely blame them. That's their training. That's the way law enforcement works. So what we have to change is, the you know, that's the conversation that's happening today. Finally, seriously, I mean, it happened under Obama. He had his 21st century policing group that this particular administration has unraveled completely. And now it's time to put it back. And so we have to have these serious conversations about what we want law enforcement to look like. You know, one of the ways that it's impacting synagogues is we need to have, since the Eitz Chaim shooting and, and the other shootings in synagogues, we do all have security. We have to have security now, right? Or we don't have to, but we feel it. We're told we need to have security. So do we have police officers as security? You can't have police as security if you have black men because they, they don't feel safe. They're not going to come. So our compromise at first was to have black off-duty police officers doing our security. But you know what? That's not an answer either. And now we've got to think about different ways of doing security because until the police system changes, we cannot use a, a law enforcement system that doesn't police itself. I want to explore that a little further. After the Tree of Life shooting, I had an opportunity to go to Pittsburgh on a chaplaincy mission. I spent Shabbat that December in Squirrel Hill, and it was a very powerful experience for me being with that community. And one of the most striking moments was during Shabbat morning services, they did Mishabayrach for the sick, and they were reading lists, you know, the list of people in the congregation, like every congregation does. And then they, with great emotion and intentionality, the Gabai, I believe with tears in his eyes, listed the names of the police police officers who ran into Tree of Life Synagogue and took bullets while they were apprehending the shooter and they were still recovering from that. I totally get it. The real connection and the sense of appreciation that the community had for law enforcement. So I want to try to explore a little more deeply how can the Jewish community navigate having positive relationships with police while also fighting against the systemic racism.
racism, the systemic problems in which police forces are terrorizing people of color? Well, you know, I do think we have to work together. Nothing's going to change that's imposed on different institutions. It has to come from inside as well. And in the city of St. Louis, we have two police associations, one white and one black. Now that already tells you that we have a problem and there's a tremendous amount of accountability, lack of accountability that happens when police officers are asked to police themselves. There needs to be some kind of serious civilian oversight with, we, we say subpoena power, where people can, really can work together. Look, we all want the same thing. We want safer neighborhoods. We want less gun violence. So I think working together is part of what we have to do. You know, police officers are asked to do so much. I know in the city of St. Louis, I've done some drive arounds with some police officers. I mean, they're social workers. They're asked to de-escalate mental illness issues. That, that's just not their training. So what if we took some of that money, which is what defund the police is all about, and invested in trained social workers that go to de-escalate those situations. They don't have to be police officers with guns. Very often it's the police officer with the gun that instigates the shooting because what else that's the mechanism they have that's the training that they have so if we had different ways of responding to some of the problems that come up in our neighborhoods i think it's a good idea to get police out of the schools i worked on a program years ago where we had these school safety officers that we thought were going to be the best thing in the world because they were going to make relationships with the kids and and then they were going to see the kids outside and they were going to have ice cream together and we thought this was going to be the greatest thing well it did not end up being a great thing. Those school safety officers did not receive the proper training. They weren't paid enough. They didn't understand. And they were scared because they didn't have the tools. And so they ended up being a terrible presence in the schools for some. Not all, of course. You can never say all. But some of them ended up terrorizing those kids, making kids distrust and hate police even more. And these police officers, they didn't get paid enough to be abused the way they're abused, to be put in harm's way every time they go out the door because of the unbelievable escalation in guns that we have. We have an open carry state. Anybody can carry a gun here. It's like the Wild West. To be a police officer here is taking your life in your hands every day. I think we need to disband the whole thing and start again and build it up from a community policing way of thinking where everybody's working together to de-escalate violence in whatever way we can. The systems that we have set in place right now, anytime that there's a problem, you get these police in riot gear. They look like they're going to a war. That's not okay. That does not respond to the issues that the protesters are protesting. Now, I'll say one more thing about this. There's a man who is connected to our congregation. His name is David Harris, and he's written a bunch of books about policing. Really brilliant. And one of the studies he did was on profiling. And he showed that profiling Muslims at airports was the least effective way of keeping people safe. Because when you profile, you anger the very people who can tell you the good guys from the bad guys. And it's the same thing with profiling of black people. When they drive, when they shop, when they walk, anytime police profile police profile ask anybody here police profile even the black police profile because that's their training and when you do profiling like that you anger the very people who could be your best allies the very people who can help you de-escalate the very people who know the good guys from the bad guys and there are some bad guys out there that are trying to stir up violence but who knows who they are the good guys and if you lump them all together you're only going to have more violence I want to explore issues within the Jewish community, particularly the white Jewish community. You touched on how your congregation has consciously been intentional about welcoming Jews of color. And I'm wondering what can we do in the broader Jewish community to assess how the American Jewish community is addressing the needs of Jews of color and how can our community do better? I think we have to be very intentional in being inclusive. We have to look at the places where there are tables of power that maybe have a few token Jews of color, but we have to be very intentional, I think, about making sure we have voices there that are included, not in ways of saying, do the work for us, but are there to help lead our agenda, to help lead our priorities, to help shift 
uh, business as usual. People keep saying, we don't ever want to get back to normal because normal is what got us here. And here is not so good. So I think that's one thing that we need to do. We need to look at our tables of power and rethink how we make them up, how we give power. Uh, to people and start being much more inclusive. One of the things that we did was we scrapped a lot of what we had. A lot of the racist texts and books and images that we were a part of, that we used, we have to really look at them. And, you know, not to erase where we've been, but to really be honest about where we've stood on issues of race. You know, that's that whole notion of truth and reconciliation. We're not going to get to any reconciliation until we really tell the truth about our story and where we've been. Jews as slave owners, Jews as people who didn't fight against slavery. Here we have to be able to not erase those stories. The other thing that we have to stop doing, and I, I think we kind of have, but this was a big issue during Ferguson that I think has shifted, and that is Jews kept saying, well, they don't appreciate us. They don't want us there because, you know, we they didn't appreciate that we marched in Selma. They kicked us out of the movement, so... You know, there's no place for us. Yeah. I have noticed that there is a defensiveness yeah. among American white right. Jews that because we marched in Selma, marched with Dr. King in the 1960s, we're here by Yotze. We fulfilled all obligations for racial justice and that we can do whatever we want now. We can live in the suburbs and bury our heads in the sand. And that's not going to solve the issues that we have. No, and we have to stop saying that. And I'll tell you, we have to stop saying that because Jews of color, who are at least 11% of who we are, it doesn't help. It doesn't help the narrative. And that's the other thing I think that has to really shift. We have to, as you just did, when we mean white Jews, we have to say white Jews. We can't assume that when we say Jews, we're talking about white Jews. In our narratives, in our stories, in our imaginings, even in our teachings, we have to highlight Jews of color who are really an important part of we, of us. You know, we created a, I had the opportunity to create a floor when we decided to build our own building, there were there was a few things I really wanted. I wanted everything round because I love round. So they gave me this really nice round. We call it the Oneg, the happy room. So when you walk in, you have this big round room. Round is really expensive, by the way. So I didn't get my round sanctuary, but I did get a round office. But this big, big round room and everything kind of goes off of this big round room. And what I wanted was, you know, remember my background as an archaeologist, I wanted a bait alpha mosaic. I wanted that. I wanted the zodiac on my floor, you know, as a conversation piece. I wanted people to see that Beit Alpha and other synagogues in ancient Israel had zodiac, had the god Helios in the middle of their floor, you know, this Roman god. How is that possible, right? I wanted to kind of stir things up with that, those images. So the outer circle are the holidays, the inner circle, the zodiac signs that go with those holidays, then the Hebrew months, the tribes of Israel, and of course, Dina is in the middle. Dina, the Shekhinah, is right in the middle with the sun, like Helios, right? But every holiday on the outer circle, and these are big, this is a 15 foot in diameter tile floor. Every holiday is a woman of color. So those Jews of color, they walk into the synagogue and they are built in. They are not a fringe group of Jews. They are built into the floor of the synagogue, Jews mm -hmm. of color. And that was the kind of commitment I felt like we had to make to make sure that Jews of color were not just this fringe group, but they were integrated. They are us. They are us. We're less than 10 weeks away from the high holidays. I hate to scare you, <laughs> but as, as we record this, we're inside of 10 weeks. What's the most important thing that American Jews need to reflect on during this most unusual year that we have had and that we will be continuing next year? I think that we have a lot of wonderful opportunities. You know, we're in the three weeks right yes. now. We're in this period of mourning. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that. We have a lot to mourn. We've lost a lot. And we have to mourn before we enter into those seven weeks of ascent, those seven weeks of consolation that will take us to the new moon of Tishrei, right? We have to mourn. And I think that's the process. What do we have to mourn? You know, what are the losses that are just inevitable? 
that we've we've lost that we won't get back what are the things that don't belong in our lives now that we've learned from sheltering in place from zooming everything and streaming and having to work so hard to be connected in isolation what do we learn that's really important so what are we willing to let go of what do we know is so important now that we have to hold on to and how will those seven weeks of ascent of consolation bring us to a Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur that will probably still be virtual, will be online, will not be in person. How do we do it right? How do we not just think about this as a temporary thing, but really give it the energy and the love and the care, the work that it deserves? And what do we want to see come out of this? What values are we going to take forward? How are we going to be part of the solution and not part of the problem? How will we recognize that COVID-19 has hit communities of color because of the disparities so hard? What are we willing to give up? What are we willing to sacrifice from our own self-interest for the common good? I started with this notion of the separation of the city and the county and why it was so important for us to be in the city. And one of the big mm. things here is property taxes. Your school is supported by individual little municipalities' property taxes. That's just not right. And I know I live in one of the ones that has the greatest schools. And I moved here because I wanted those great public schools. But I think that we have to really look at what it means to sacrifice for the common good and maybe pool all these resources together and be more equitable in the way that we fund the programs that will benefit everyone. So I think it's about sacrifice. I listen every week to Pod Save the People. Uh, DeRay McKesson acts as the host. And at the end of a podcast, when he has an extensive interview with a guest, he asks same question. He says that there are folks who have protested, they've called politicians, they've screamed from the rooftops, and yet they often feel frustrated that things do not improve on the ground fast enough and sometimes get worse. What advice do you have for people on the brink of despair? Don't give up. Don't give up. You know, we just studied Pinchas and the Benotz Lovchad. The Daughters of Tzalafchad, Numbers Chapter 27. And that's my image. And I, I want to remind DeRay that we were working so hard to close the workhouse. We have a debtor's prison here. And this has been going on for years and years and years. And finally, this week, it looks like we are going to close the workhouse. This is a horrible, horrible place that is a debtor's prison. It's a place they send people because they don't have bail money. And people really suffer there. And I remember, you know, we've been working on this for before Ferguson during Ferguson, and now just this week. So what do we learn? We learn that Pinchas, who tried, you know, was a zealot for God, wanted change, right? He wanted to end that plague, but he used violence, and he wanted it right away. The Benotz Lovchad, on the other hand, they also wanted to change things. They wanted to inherit. They used their words, and they were strategic. They made a friend of Moses. They sent Moses back to Moses's boss and said, go talk to God about this, you know, see what God says. And then they were willing to wait. They were willing to work not to not be bold, not to not be courageous, not to demand their due. But they knew that changing the inheritance laws would change the structure of the society. And they didn't want to leave it with nothing. Because if they would inherit, then they would take that inheritance to their husbands because there were no sons. So that was the issue. How could they inherit as women if they were going to take that inheritance to other tribes? So they had to figure out a way that in that system, the system wouldn't completely crumble and leave every Everybody without anything. So those beautiful women who are named, all five of them, we know their names, they really give us a model for leadership that I think we can follow today. So I say, don't give up. Be bold, be courageous, use your body, put it on the front line, be willing to sacrifice for the common good, and don't give up. Susan, I could talk with you all day long, but I want to respect your time and the community that you are so diligently serving. But before we go, is there any other message that you would like to share that we haven't touched on already? People are feeling afraid because they're afraid of what they're going to lose. People who have just a little bit, they get scared. And I guess what I would like to say is when you're scared, Sometimes what you do is you project onto other people your greatest fears and you demonize other people. I would just say to everybody out there, please, when you feel that fear, turn it to awe and reach out and make a friend of someone that you think might be a demon because I can promise you that they're not. For the most part, people just are looking for 
real relationships and real conversations. So I appreciate the opportunity to have a real conversation with you. I've been demonized many times <laughs> for people who think they know what I stand for or what I believe because you need an enemy sometimes when you're scared. So let's fight that instinct. Let's rise above that. Be more like the daughters of Stolchad and work together towards the common good. It's a beautiful message to transform fear into meaningful relationships and peace. Rabbi Susan Talvi, thank you for being so generous with your time, for sharing your Torah, your example. I look to you as one of my teachers. I've had the opportunity to learn with you in St. Louis. I look forward to future opportunities, hopefully in person at some point, but I really treasure the opportunity to learn with you today. I wish you Godspeed, good health safety, and may you go from strength to strength in all that you do. Thank you. You too. I wish to thank my guest, Rabbi Susan Talvey, for joining me on the My Teacher podcast. I invite you to look at the show notes where you can find more information about Rabbi Talvey and Central Reform Congregation in St. Louis, including a link to view the synagogue's floor artwork and other links related to to Rabbi Talvi's social activism that she discusses in this conversation. I wish to thank some special teachers of mine, my three children, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Theme music is by Sam Bernstein, who is also our sound engineer. Production assistant is Noam Bernstein. Internet art and graphic design are by Esther Bernstein. Please help others find the show by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I welcome comments, including suggestions for future guests at myteacherpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out through Twitter at podcastteach, as well as Facebook and Instagram. May the wisdom of your teachers guide you, and may you be a teacher to others. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the White House, and happy Hanukkah. This afternoon uh, really is special, uh, because we are joined by Israel's president, uh, President Rivlin, and Mrs. Rivlin. Uh, we're also honored uh, that after Rabbi Susan Talvey from St. Louis's Central Reform Congregation, leads us in the blessing, uh, President Rivlin and Ms. Rivlin will join us in lighting the Hanukkah candles. With all the schmutz in the world, can you believe that we are here with the President of the United States and the President of Israel celebrating Hanukkah in the White House? <laughs>